When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hith Liday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Uh, joining me this week uh, is one of the great ATQ writers, Badwater. How you doing? Doing pretty good, all things considered. Uh, I'm here. I'm upright. Ready to go. Uh, how many car accidents have you been in today? None. Wow. But uh, if you're talking the last week, um, yeah, there was a car accident. So you're, you're significantly decreased your daily rate of car accidents compared to... Yeah, the, 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 the statistics aren't uh, bearing out my, um, my insurances need to cover me. Right. <laughs> based on making money off of me. It's not- uh, well, we'll cross our fingers for no head injuries. Um, yeah. uh, so let's start out talking about uh, a little baseball uh, since uh, Oregon's baseball season has come to an end. And yeah, you wrote up the season review uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday night. Uh, go read uh, Badwater's article on uh, ATQ about the baseball season. I thought it was uh, very well written and it, uh, you know, summed up a lot of the things that we've talked about on this podcast. Um, uh, but let's just wrap up, you know, how they did at, you know, in regionals, you know, they went to Louisville. Uh, what were you seeing just in, uh, you know, the couple of games in Louisville? Well, what I was seeing was uh, something of a subset of um, what we were seeing in the Pac-12 tournament. And the obvious, the obvious issue is pitching and pitching is really easy to, to point at, and it's true that the pitching in the second half of the season uh, wasn't what necessarily the first half of the season um, might suggest that it would be. Um, I, I don't think that the the pitching was quite up to the standard that the first half the season would suggest and that's a that's the easy finger to point but another finger is that um, we had some great batting through the season and boy when when uh, our big bats were up against some really good pitching uh, like the beavers and like uh, the pitching that we found in the Pac-12 tournament and and the Louisville Regional, um, the batting wasn't quite up to snuff either. And I don't know if that was coincidental 
or, you know, if it's that, that truism of, you know, pitching wins tournaments, wins championships. But um, I don't think that, that the batting for whatever reason um, would, uh, it, it wasn't there to help our, our pitching out. And granted, our, our pitching shouldn't have to uh, require that the bats, um, you know, hit eight or 10 or 18 runs uh, to win a game. But the bats aren't always going to be there. And uh, the pitching is is a puzzle that that the Oregon staff has to know about. I'm sure that they recognize, and um, that's going to need to be a focus in the off season. Is well, what to do? I mean, you're definitely right. You know, if you don't have an ace pitcher, you're not getting through the postseason. It's you know, defense wins championships. Um, uh, but I mean, that Michigan game was such a microcosm. That was like every Oregon loss, you know, in in a nutshell. Because you know, uh, Oregon's bat, you know, it, it was such a perfect, you know, bat example of Oregon's batting performance where, you know, they're a little cold against the starter and then they accelerate against the relief, you know, to the point where they've, you know, they scored six runs, you know, in that game. Now, maybe I'm a little old fashioned, um, you know, or maybe my expectations are miscalibrated for, for modern college baseball, but like most of my life coming up, six runs was an ex- you know, offensive, incredible offensive performance and more than enough to win a baseball game. On the other hand, you know, literally every run that Michigan scored, correct me if I'm wrong about this, literally every run that Michigan scored was on a home run, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, or, it was a three uh, run Oregon. shot, a three run shot, a three run shot, right? Or Oregon uh, late in the season um, was giving up home runs right and left. And the thing is, it didn't matter really who was pitching. It didn't matter if it was Aon or Ciofatelli or even Colby Summers. You know, it's uh, we just had a, a propensity for giving up the long ball. Well, but that's what I'm saying is I, I'm sort of disagreeing with your take. And, uh, and and I think the Michigan game is a good example of it. Like, you know, yeah, when you're getting to postseason play, you got to, you know, earn these runs and Oregon's on base percentage, you know, in their batting average uh, remains excellent. I mean, it's somewhat, you know, inflated by, for example, that uh, Southeast Missouri game in between in which they like set a record for how many, you know, hits they have. But basically, you know, this is how baseball works is you get on base, you, 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 you bump your on-base percentage and eventually good things happen. And one of the best things that can happen is after getting a couple of dudes on base, you clear them with a home run. And, and to the extent, and, and here's the deal in postseason play, when you're facing itch, you know, aces, you're not going to get those, you know, uh, 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 base clearing, you know, home runs to finish it off. So you just need to keep up steady batting. And frankly, I, I thought that Oregon was more or less doing that. Um, you know, I, the, the, and I think they were fairly consistently doing that throughout the season with the exception of a couple of games where the bats go cold, you know, and, and that the, you know, the, the only thing that's really, you know, missing and you can't criticize them for it because like they're, you're not supposed to be getting home runs all the time, uh, is the home run to sort of clear 
clear them. And so they just sort of had to like bump, 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 you know, lots of base hits. And eventually, you know, good things happen, RBIs and so forth. Like, I think if you analyze the, this might be a good project for you this summer, Badwater, analyze how many RBIs versus home runs, uh, you know, Oregon, you know, scores on, I'm willing to bet that the, the RBI number vastly outpaces the, the home run number. Um, and uh, I think I'll, I'll take you up on that um, with the added uh, examination of um, how Oregon was dependably leaving runners on base and See, not that's bringing where- them to the plate. That's where I'm disagreeing with you, um, or at least I, I'm not saying that that wasn't happening. It was, but what I'm saying is I don't think that's out of line with what uh, expectations ought to be. That basically, you you know, the the name of the game, you know, this was the whole sabermetric revolution. This, you know, go watch Moneyball. Uh, is that the only thing that matters is your on base percentage or your on base percentage plus slugging, um, where you get dudes on base and you, and it's sort of just a matter of luck, whether or not you're able to bring them home, unless you can consistently hit the long ball. In that case, you don't have to solve the, you know, the fielding or the ball placement problem. If you just knock it out of the park after you put a bunch of dudes on base, I am not a believer in the theory that Oregon was uniquely failing by, you know, stranding dudes on base. And if you want another project, look at the risk percentage. I'm pretty sure that Oregon's risk percentage was, uh, you know, scoring with runners in scoring position percentage i'm fairly certain that that's in line with the top uh, batting programs uh, throughout the country I'm, I'm i'd be willing to put down a marker on that one um well we, I, you know, we're, we're both uh numbers guys so um i'm intrigued in seeing how the numbers yeah, will i'm handing out, out editorial assignments in the middle of a podcast i said that we would only do it on our saturday mornings but here i yeah, am no, handing no, out it, it's Tuesday all good podcast. It's all good because uh, I, I, I want to see what the number show as well. That that's my theory is that I don't think the 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 you and Slurms and Adam have all come at me with this. Uh, you know, oh, they're stranding so many dudes on base. I think that's hu- human squishy brain. Uh, issue the same sort of thing that I run into with football all the time, and is why I write the articles that I do to sort of like lance the boil of squishy brains. Um, boy, that metaphor got gross. Uh, the it is that like you remember it because it's emotionally painful to see a stranded batter, and then you never wind up doing the statistical analysis to find out well, are they stranding batters in risk uh, higher than uh, they ought to be? You know, compared to where other teams in their scoring tranche. Are, and I'm willing to bet that they're not. I don't think that theory really holds water. I think what happens is that they get enough runners on base and then they, you know, they bring them home at an, you know, at a normal rate. They strand guys at a normal rate. And then what's really happening is a, they are, you know, it, when they face better batters, they are not getting the base clearing home runs. And so, you know, therefore you remember it more, but B, and I think the real problem and the correctable one and the one that was really got to figure out, you know, if they want to take the next step in the program is that other programs are hitting those base clearing home runs against Oregon because Oregon is not bringing ace pitching into the postseason, And so they are facing in Oregon's pitching staff, the type of pitching staff that they are used to seeing in their conference series in which they, you know, they get their scores. That's how they make it to the postseason, And that, you know, 
if I'm looking down, I mean, like, I can't believe I have to say this out loud. It seems like so obvious to me. Oregon's problem is not their batting average. Oregon's problem is not their on-base percentage. Like, Oregon is lights it up. Their problem is they don't have an ace pitcher who can shut down, you know, ribbies in the long ball. Um, and, uh, you know, I, Lord knows I don't know how to fix it. I mean, I'm not going to suit up for the Ducks and start throwing balls again. But, like, uh, you know, that that's it. That's they, they got to get themselves an ace. Uh, that that's my take. Uh, you think I'm wrong about that? Um, no, <clears throat> the, the short answer is no, uh, pitching is still the problem. Um, but you know, I'm more than willing to take a look at the, the metrics and, um, see just how off base the rest of us are unintended well, and, well, like, yeah i mean if the metrics completely bear out what you're saying then then we'll own it but uh, it'll be a fun exploration well d- sure. well here's an i'm tacking another assignment onto your onto, on this oh, God. You on the podcast. okay uh well i mean the public podcast will be published you can just listen to it <laughs> who else gets you know recordings of their their marching orders uh the <laughs> Uh, I'm willing to bet that if you look at the offensive statistics for Oregon versus the rest of the top 32, uh, that they will be uh, in line with the best hitting teams. And if you look at the ERA and other metrics to uh, for pitching compared to the top 32, that they will be in the bottom of the top 32 and maybe considerably, you know, and that, you know, that's, that's where the gap is. Um, and, and, uh, you know, again, I don't know how to fix it. It's probably, you know, it, it, it's probably going to require, you know, uh, getting, getting some dudes on the free market. I don't know how that works in baseball. I mean, I know how it works in major league baseball, but <laughs> it's, it's not exactly that in college ball yet, or maybe it is, maybe we'll see a lot of, you know, flurry of activity is, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, you know, football is already really exploring the transfer portal. We've definitely seen it for a long time now in both men's and women's basketball that they're picking stuff up, you know, probably the next sport to really like, you know, rebuild rosters and patch holes significantly is baseball. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that will be a, a fun exploration and it'll be the subject of an article or two this month. Uh, not this month in the off season here. Well, I think Slurm's uh, one of that project. You can't. Oh man. Okay. I'm, uh, now I'm handing work. out assignments to people who aren't even on this <laughs> podcast on this podcast. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm sure we'll have some some good information, and it, it doesn't it doesn't deviate from the fact that pitching was and is a huge problem. Yeah, you, know, you can't have a closer. Uh, yep, yeah, and. Colby Summers had a great year last year. This year, though, um, in spite of his save numbers, you know, he was just, he would walk people, he would give up some home runs, and just make things unnecessarily dramatic. And that's not what I'm looking from from your save guy. Yeah, uh, it, it did. It, it sort of seemed like a couple of Oregon relievers would like lose control of their pitch, um, you know, especially later in the season. And it's sort of like, you know, what's going on there? Um, all right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, the track and field nationals coming up. 
Okay, Hayward Field, uh, the Palace of Track and Field, uh, is hosting yet another uh, incredible competition uh, this week, uh, starting tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, uh, the the uh, four-day competition uh, for um, the NCAA uh, National Championships. Um, uh, the Ducks are, are sending quite a few. Uh, you know, we, we covered this with, uh, uh, last week um, with Adam. You know, uh, uh, I believe it's 14 women and nine men um, are going to the uh, – you know, they're waking up in their dorms and walking over to Hayward Field. Um, I, I think it'll be a hell of an advantage. Um, and uh, 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 ATQ will be uh, covering all of it every day because uh, we're excited about track and field, not because we don't have anything else to do. Uh, that's definitely it. Um, uh, what are you looking forward to the most um, in, in track and field competition, Bauer? Well, I'm looking forward to learning who Oregon has for outstanding athletes in track and field because I like the, you know, the vast majority of the uh, duck fan base uh, don't really know much other than we did really well in the PAC 12. So how does this translate into national competition and how does it translate into potentially future Olympic competition? I'm looking to see who the standouts are and um, how their performance stacks up nationally and you know, potentially on a world stage. Because you know, they're hosting to, world next July, month. <laughs> yeah, right. July, we got the worlds. Um. Yeah, no, the, uh, the, I believe the qualification process for that is still, there's still some that's up in the air. Um, it, but there's a lot of, um, current and former Oregon athletes who look like they're locks, uh, for competing in worlds, um, again at Hayward field, cause where else you can have it? Um, uh, you know, the guys that I'm, you know, pretty excited about are, uh, well, there's a couple of Oregon natives. Mike Williams, uh, is pretty damn exciting runner. Uh, Jada Ross, um, uh, I really enjoy watching Kemba Nelson run. Um, uh, she's just, uh, she's just electric. Um, the, the events that I am, uh, sort of less familiar with and really looking forward to getting my eyes on, um, are the, the throwing events. Um, you know, I, I'm really attracted to, to you know, to the running events, but like, there's something cool about the, the javelin and the hammer throw. I also like how like the bodies wind up being pretty different. And like, I enjoy watching the decathlon because, you know, the, there's a bunch of strategic choices about like, um, you know, okay, like seven out of the 10 events are like this. So I'm going to maximize my body for that. And then like have a desultory effort at the, you know, some other things. Um, yeah, the decathlon the, might be my favorite event just because, just because there's so much very, um, variance in what you have to work toward. And as you say, there's a lot of strategic choices that go into, you know, what puts you on the podium. Um, the other thing that's, uh, that's really great about it is that you don't have to, um, go hunting through your, uh, you, you know, streaming options. Cause it's all on ESPN. Um, the, the, the first two days on Wednesday and Thursday are on ESPN U. Um, and then Fridays on ESPN two. And then the last day of competition on Saturday, it's on ESPN proper. Um, it's in the middle of the day, uh, you know, like 1230, 1130, you know, type of starts. So the Saturday, you know, get started a little early, like 1030. Um, 
And uh, yeah, my plan is um, while I'm going to be pretending to work, I'm going to have my other screen, you know, locked on to, to ESPN. I'm just going to be, you know, it's, it's like, it's like a little Olympics, you know, like when, when, whenever the Olympics are on and, and everybody's like, you know, you've got the Olympic, you know, whatever your favorite events are like streaming in the corner, like, or, or during March madness, you know, when everybody pretends to work and there's like something like a billion dollar productivity loss, like that's what, <laughs> that's what being in Oregon and when the NCAAs are, are going on, you know, when you get national television coverage, um, you know, it should be pretty exciting. And, and like a lot of these, you know, a lot of these folks are, are, are just total heroes, um, you know, and, and we'll be representing, you know, not just, you know, the University of Oregon, but the country in 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 near future competitions. Um, and, and like, I don't know, you know, I, I think the track and field is like a big part of the identity of the University of Oregon. I think it was, a, you know, a pretty essential part of, you know, even if, you know, you come to ATQ because you're primarily a football fan, um, like I think you know, football fans need to acknowledge that like a lot of why Oregon is successful at their football program and all the rest of the sports that the revenue from football, you know, feeds is because their legacy is a track school. You know, it, 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 it attracts uh, athletes who want to compete in track and field during the spring. There are a bunch of football players who have done that. Um, and, you know, Hey, Bill Bowerman, um, Phil Knight, like these are track athletes for Oregon, um, you know, and they, they turn around and give back, uh, y- you know, it's an incredible legacy that, that uh, I feel like this is, this is a good time for, for fans, uh, for Oregon fans who would not necessarily think of themselves as track and field fans to, to, to tune in and, and see the best and the brightest that the ducks have. Right. And it says you and I have talked about with baseball and softball, you don't have to be watching every moment, for fear that you're going to be missing something. That's just not the way it works. It's great to have in the background, uh, do your thing and yeah, catch some great sporting events. Uh, yeah, no, like the sort of the rhythms of track and field are, are nice to, um, to sort of combine with other things too. Like, you know, I don't know about you, but like when I'm watching a football game, like I'm not doing something else when I'm watching a football game, I am like sweatily grabbing my, my drink and staring at the screen and like, you know, track and field is really, you know, conducive to, to putting on and watching like amazing displays of athleticism. Um, you know, but at the same time, like, you know, uh, uh, not sweating your way through it and giving yourself an ulcer. Uh, and you know what? That's that that's nice, too. Uh, so I hope everybody tunes in um, and, and follows along with Addicted to Quack for, for our coverage of track and field. Yeah, we're going to have uh, great coverage of um, every day. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about football. Okay, so uh, uh, as we talked about um, last week with Adam, uh, Oregon's got uh, an incredible football recruiting uh, June set up. Um, there's a lot of dominoes that are sort of yet to fall. I think Oregon's in the sweepstakes for you know a, a couple of you know really notable quarterbacks. Um, um, but the thing that you know we talked about last week, and I wanted to take your temperature on Badwater because I, I, I I'm interested in your take here too, is that. Um, so much of the the folks that Oregon is focusing on recruiting this month, um, they're not that 
you know, they're, they're, they're going after some skill players. You know, I mentioned the quarterback stuff, you know, they're in the, they're the race for the five-star running back, Richard Young, you know, there's uh, an incredible five-star athlete, Samuel Mpemba, um, who's coming in, uh, uh, you know, for a visit, you know, that should be pretty exciting. You know, they're, they're in the action for, for some wide receivers and, 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 and DB. So like, I, you know, I, there's, there's like six guys, I think, you know, who I would classify as like skill players, um, for the offense and defense that they're interested in. So I don't want to like be too maximalist about this, but like when you look at the list of, you know, the dirty work guys, you know, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, linebackers, tight ends, you know, the guys who are blocking and tackling, that is the lion's share of the guys that they are targeting. And they are like scary how good, you know, these guys are, you know, folks that I, I thought, you know, Oregon was never good. I always thought that Oregon would sort of be in play for the skill player guys, but like coming up as an Oregon fan, I never thought that Oregon would be a focus for some of these, you know, trench players, you know, blockers and tacklers. Um, uh, uh, is that sort of catching you by surprise too? Or, or what do you think about that? Well, yes and no. Uh, you know, uh, Cristobal really opened the door for um, Lanning and Cruz ability to recruit line players and because they they both know that the line player and the size at the line and the skill at defensive and offensive line is what's going to turn a good team into a great team and we've had kind of a a hint of that but uh you know i'm uh heartened by lanning's continued approach to focus on on the lines and it's like you say with the with the offensive line uh you can't transfer portal uh, a skill player on the offensive line they have to be homegrown they have to buy into the system and uh that's you know through action and through recruiting that's obviously uh landing's approach also well, you know, the, it's also how you differentiate yourself from the rest of the Pac-12. You know, here on the West Coast, you know, it seems to be a lot easier to get high quality skill players than it is to get high quality um, trench players. And, you know, you're sort of in an arms race with the like, you know, so what? You got a great wide receiver. Every team's got a great cornerback and vice versa. You know, um, the on the other hand, like, Hey, you got a great defensive tackle. Well, he should destroy the rest of the Pac-12 because they ain't got great offensive guards. You know, hey, you know, you got a great, you know, left tackle. Well, you know, he's going to look great because, you know, he's going up against, you know, uh, subpar edge rushers. Um you know, oh, you got a phenomenal tight end. Well, guess what? He's going to run right over that linebacker who's trying to cover him. You know, uh, yeah. And and Oregon's throwing a national net out there, but definitely they're they're still getting the West Coast players like Connolly and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, it's not at the expense of what really good line players there are on the West Coast. Um, they're just casting a wider net. And it, you know, it looks like they're going to uh, catch more than a couple of big fish. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, you're playing the percentages, you know, you, you, you gotta, 
you know, you, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, right? Like it's sort of a numbers game. Um, but you're totally right about it being national, you know, net too. It's just like, you know, here, uh, you know, some, some of the, you know, the linemen that I'm talking about that are coming in for the June 24th, big recruiting weekend, you've got Caden Proctor, where he's from, where's he from Iowa, right? Uh, Miles McVeigh, Illinois, Loden Reichart, uh, uh, Missouri, you know, I think, uh, is a couple of guys from Texas on the defensive line, uh, uh, uh Vasek and Hicks, um, you know, like, they're, they're, you know, look, they're, they're targeting California because you're always got to target California on the West coast. And like they're targeting Washington, which is, you know, hilarious, of course, uh, you know, taking advantage, you know, of Washington being, you know, Oregon's inferior for all this time, you know, like when, uh, you know, if and when Oregon scores Jaden Wayne um, from Washington, just the, the, you know, the meltdown in Seattle is going to be delicious, but like there's not with the, you know, the exception of USC and Stanford, let's be honest. Uh, you know, there isn't another program in the PAC 12 that is capable of seriously walking into the Midwest, Texas, the South, the Atlantic coast and, and saying, you know, get on a plane and come 3000 miles you know, to, to the West coast, um, you know, Oregon is one of the very few programs that can seriously make those claims, uh, you know, to being able to, to do that. Um, and you know, it's, it's really where their biggest comparative advantage versus the rest of the PAC 12 comes from. The other thing that I, I I'll say, you know, that was interesting. I was, um, cause I recently wrote an article about Stanford. And so I was trying to pull down, you know, some offensive line statistics because like off Stanford's offensive line collapse has been, um, just a, truly astonishing and it's also relevant to the article about oregon state that i i published this morning we'll, we'll talk about that in a second um that like so I, I pulled down the the talent ratings for your starting offensive line in 2021 and then compared uh you know how th those recruiting uh ratings to to how well you performed and you know it was it was interesting in a few different ways. You, you learned that like Oregon state's uh, offensive line coach, Jim Mahalchik is really earning his paycheck because like that was an incredible discrep, you know, like their performance versus their recruiting ranking was incredible. Um, you know, Stanford was incredible for totally the opposite reason. They should fire Terry Heffernan. Um, the, you know, but here's the other thing that sort of stood out to me was that the five teams that had, uh, the far and away the highest net, um, or excuse me, average recruiting rankings for their offensive line were Oregon, Washington, Stanford, Utah, and USC. You know what those five teams have in common? Hmm. Uh, no, enlighten me. They are the only five teams who have made it to the PAC 12 title game in the last five years. There you go. Like, it's not like, I don't think that's a coincidence, man. You know, like that's not an accident, you know, and, and like, you know, uh, I, 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 you know, at the risk of sounding like a broken record on this podcast, your offensive line, dude, like that you have to have a high quality offensive line. You, this game is one in the trenches and, you know, anybody who's like casting about for a villain in the Pac-12, you know, why isn't the Pac-12 performing better? And, and like, you know, far be it from me to like defend Larry Scott, you know, he's, he's dead and buried or actually he's probably still alive. But like, you know, the, one of the reasons why I always thought that people, you know, going off on Larry Scott was like kind of, you know, misplaced was not because I thought that Larry Scott was a fantastic 
you know, commissioner, it was because I was looking, you know, behind the curtains at, you know, where your recruiting was. And it was like, and you know, where your line play was. And it's like, guys, this is the problem. You know, the, 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 the problem is just, you know, structurally the PAC 12 is not producing the big bodies in the trenches. And that's why they're playing inconsistently and losing to the, the, the programs on, you know, out East where, you know, those guys are more available. And the reason why Oregon, despite, you know, coming from a tiny little rainy state uh, that doesn't produce any real talent, the reason why Oregon, you know, has, has run this conference for the last 20 years is because, uh, you know, they are able to cast national net and they are able to win in the trenches. And, and Hey, you know what? A lot of that has to do with the track program. So watch the track and field nationals, um, you know, Oregon's a national brand. Uh, it is an invaluable thing in when there are, you know, clear regional disparities in recruiting the most important positions. Um, right. And right, right now is, a, you know, in the next uh, month, month and a half, two months, it, it's an exciting time for Oregon recruiting. You know, in the big picture, we can't uh, forget that Cristobal um, did a really good job when uh, Slick Willie jumped ship mm -hmm. with putting together a recruiting class. Um, and that, and, you know, he's, he's built up um, a, a good stockpile of players you know the shelves aren't exactly empty but um when cristobal left what landing has been able to keep together and put together and accomplish is just really nothing short of astonishing so uh, yeah I, I we're gonna see more of that this summer and you know it's a uh, it's good time to be a duck fan on the recruiting trail. So I mentioned uh, Oregon State's, um, you know, overperformance on their offensive line. I, I wrote an article and published uh, it this morning. Um, you know, the thing that that stood out to me about you know reviewing their numbers is they were Oregon State was number nineteen in F and P, F plus. You know, their offensive, you know, uh, uh, rating. You know, their offense was not a, a problem at all. In fact, it was you know excellent. And in fact, was vastly overperformed where their talent is because I think their talent is like third or fourth worst in the Pac-12, you know, their average, you know, it's like they're really, you know, Jim Mahalchik, the offensive line coach and Jonathan Smith, the head coach. And I think, you know, the, the primary offensive architect are really punching above their weight class. Um, you know, it's it, it, what they are doing, you know, as pound for pound, I think that is the best, um, you know, offensive coaching staff, uh, um, in the pack 12. And, and I, I think number two is pretty far away. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. The, um, the, the choice of John, Jonathan Smith for head coach was, was and is yet yeah, turned out to be a really good choice for, uh, Oregon state. Um, he's been as a player, he's been in that position where, uh, other teams, Big Brother or whoever has has far better talent, but they were coached up well. So he has an excellent model to work from, and has been using that model. And it, he's a heck of a coach, and there's no denying that. 
It is yeah. funny, you know, how many Washington because he was he was Chris Peterson's offensive coordinator for the first several years. Um, uh, uh, and like, it's funny because Washington fans didn't think much of him, you know, and, and now Jonathan Smith has beat him several times and they're like going through an identity crisis because, you know, oh, well, they're all delusional, of course, but like you know, that, that was the hard thing to like convince Washington fans of is like, it's not the driver, it's the car, you know, like the, the problem was the way that that, you know, program was constituted and the fact that they had like a noodle armed quarterback, um, like, you, you know, I, I think Jonathan Smith's a hell of a coach. And the other thing that's, you know, impre- uh, impressive about the way they constructed the offense is that like, I don't really think that chance Nolan, their quarterback is like a phenomenal quarterback. I, I think he's not a stupid quarterback. I think he's serviceable for it, but I, you know, the way I put it in the article was that like, you know, he's a good fit for the offense that Jonathan Smith designed, but it's more likely that Jonathan Smith designed this offense to work for chance Nolan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what I was talking about in a previous podcast is like masters of your craft, you know, like figure out the personnel that you have and design a playbook to put them in the best position to win. And like, and looking at where the talent, you know, strengths and weaknesses are for Oregon State, you know, it's been a masterful job. Um, yeah, and um, offensive uh, overperformance is well, and defensive overperformance for that matter, it's always a result of coaching. Sure. Bottom line, it's harder to do defensive overperformance. Like this is the advanced stats community is has really, you know, I feel like got this one solved that like you're there's a bad defensive coordinator can screw you on third downs, you know, by not um, having you lined up properly against because a lot of offensive coaches will design third down packages that are like, we don't use this at any other time except when we need a get out of jail free play. And so it's sort of like trick play is not the right way to put it, but they're like kind of akin to a trick play and that they're like, it's a set play. And if you're not a good defensive coordinator and you don't know how to quickly, you know, like, oh, they've lined up that guy there. Okay, move the linebacker there. Okay, good. Um, Like, then that can sort of screw you. But there are very few in the way of like you know, getting your defense to really overperform your talent. Like you pretty much like you're because the defense is reactive while the offense is proactive, right? Like the, the offense gets to choose the play and the defense has to react to it. And so yeah, the, the which defense, you, which you mentioned in your OSU article. Right. So the, the defense, like the defensive performance tracks, um, talent way more than offense does. And like, you know, so there's lots of programs that demonstrate that, right? Like Washington state, for example, um, you know, where like Washington state owes the entirety to what their program has been in the post Paul Wolf era to, well, our offense is hard to stop. You know, our defense is made up of, of, you know, cheerleaders and band members. Um, but like, you know, we can fling that ball around and, and try to stop us. Um, you know, where, what's the equivalent, you know, like name a team that's like, Oh, this is a low talent team, but their defense sure kicks ass despite it. Like I, I kind of don't think that team exists. Um, right. And uh, when, um, when we had lesser Oregon teams, yep. It was the, it was the same paradigm, you know, well, you, you got you, by on great offense. Well, you saw opportunistic defenses, you know, but mm-hmm. like they could only be opportunistic once the opposing offense started making mistakes. Like they had to synergize off of what the offense was doing. Um, but like, 
you know, you ain't going to win in the trenches with clever scheme. Like you only win those battles through muscle, um, and, and, you know, and, and physical talent and aptitude. Um, and it's why it goes back to, you know, what we've been talking about, uh, with recruiting is like, you just have to have those guys, right? Like I believe one of those sec coaches who was being interviewed, I think it was a South Carolina coach. I can't remember. Um, was being interviewed about like, what's it like to go up against Georgia? And he was just like, what do you mean? What's it like to go, you know, like, what am I supposed to do a bunch, bunch of, you know, five-star defensive linemen who are like crushing me on every snap? You know, it's like, yeah, man, like I, you know, I don't think that Dan Lanning is a bad defensive coordinator. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I'm not saying that he's a dummy who like lucked into this position, but like, if you've got a bunch of five-star defensive linemen, like, you, you know, like you, you're halfway to a win before you get off the bus. Like, uh, and it's, you know, it's just why recruiting is so essential at the position. And, yeah, and, 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 you know, and that's the thing. He, he was able to recruit that. So uh, Lennings, um, you know, of course, he's going to try to translate that into rec- recruiting on both lines here. Yeah, no doubt. Say, pointing to, hey, this is what I did for these guys. I can do that for you here. And, and it's, it's why I think it's valuable to talk about Oregon state, you know, it's why I, you know, I, I think all these PAC 12 previews that I write, it's not just because these are teams that Oregon plays, although I, I think that's very valuable. Um, if I do say so myself, but it's like, it's a way of understanding better how football works, how rosters are constructed, where recruiting priorities are, how you go about structuring your scheme around, you know, your roster, what your roster management is. And all of these things have made me appreciate more and more what Oregon has been doing under Lanning and under Cristobal and, and in the coaches before and in terms of like, they're not falling into traps that I am able to identify, you know, other teams uh, falling into. Um, and so, you know, one of them that I see, or, or just like th- they are, they have been leveraging themselves out of natural holes that other programs have had a harder time leveraging themselves out of. And so like Oregon state, it's, it's very clear to me that those guys you know, as good as the offense has been, again, despite, you know, talent problems, the defense has not been able to leverage themselves out of their recruiting problems, you know, and so that, you know, the two great areas where they're suffering uh, has been defensive backs, which, you know, as I say in the article, I don't think they're fixing that problem. Um, and it's why I think their defense, you know, um, uh, is probably still going to be a problem for them, um, especially in modern college football when they're facing so many like prolific passing offenses and spread offenses. I just don't think those DBs are capable of keeping up, and they're just playing. I mean, like half of their 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 defensive backfield is going to be walk ons. You know, like it's just. I'm sorry, guys. Um, on the other hand, like the other problem that they've had on defense has been exactly what we've been talking about all podcast long um, is their defensive line has been really problematic for them. You know, like they, they had to bring, you know, they brought in a transfer last year from Minnesota, Keonti Shad, who was like immediately better than everybody else that they had. But you know, the whole thing is that they lose the guy after a year, right? It's like they, you know, the, the internal development of defensive linemen, you know, based on recruiting is just like, it's a goose egg for, for Oregon state, unfortunately. And like, um, you know, and it got real bad the last couple of years because they've had severe problems with the nose tackle. You know, it's sort of like a running theme in the Pac-12, you know, that I've talked about with a couple of the teams like Cal and Stanford. Um, I think that Oregon State might be fixing it this year. It looks like they have like a couple of nose tackles maybe coming online and therefore they'd be able to get back to running their 3-4 again. Um, but like, you know, 
again, like the lesson that we can all take away from Oregon state as uh, Oregon fans is like, thank God, you know, there's been such a priority on, you know, developing your own defensive lineman. Right. So when we're talking, um, the Oregon state defense, um, is the, do you see the defensive line and the secondary as being two sides of the same Achilles heel or, uh, no, I think they're pretty different. Oregon's Oregon state's Achilles heel definitely looking to be the secondary. No, I I think they have two Achilles heels. Um, and and I think they, you know, uh, I, I think they may be patching up one of their two Achilles heels, but they will still have the other one in the form of the DBs. Um, now obviously they're, there is some interrelation, right? Like there needs to be a decent pass rush, but like in Oregon's state's defensive structure, the pass rush doesn't come from the defensive line. They're running a three, four, or actually more often have been running a two, four, five because of the nose tackle problem that I mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so like their edge rush comes from their outside linebackers. Their outside linebackers have actually not been too bad. In, in fact, uh, you know, their, their linebackers as a whole, they're both their outside and their inside linebackers have been, you know, pretty decent for Oregon State. You know, they had Hamilcar Rashid a couple of years ago. Um, they had, you know, very productive last year, Andre Hughes-Murray and Riley Sharp. Um, they uh, held their inside linebackers, Avery Roberts and Omar Spates, have been there for like, they were like five-year starters. They're, they're probably both going to be in the NFL when all is said and done. They, you know, were the leading tacklers in the Pac-12, like, and Oregon State was number 91 in F plus defense last year. And that was their best performance in six years. Like number 91 was their best performance in six years. And they have really solid linebacker performance. Like that should tell you what the value of really good linebacker performances, you know, sure. uh, well, sorry, that's, uh, I, I take that back. That's not what I meant. Uh, it, 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 the, that alone is a, is a, a necessary but not sufficient condition. Because let me tell you, having bad linebacker performance will sink you just as fast as anywhere else. That That's the thing about the defense is that, again, this is a reactive game. And so, you know, whatever you're weakest at, that's what you're going to be attacked. And so the notion, I guess, the, that I'm trying to dispel maybe is the notion that, like, if you're good at linebackers but bad at other things, that that'll that those linebacker skills will spill over to the rest of the defense and will protect you against bad defensive line play and bad secondary play. And that is totally false that you can only be good at what you're good at. And anything that you're bad at is what the opponent is going to attack you at. So like specifically the way that plays out is that when Oregon state has to go to a two, four, five, because they don't have a nose tackle that in order to stop the run at all, they have to have their linebackers immediate, their inside linebackers immediately trigger on the run. And so now they're not available to stop, you know, RPO slant passes and other like intermediate passes. They have a hard time covering like tight ends and running backs coming out of the backfield to catch, you know, intermediate passes. Like I've got a bunch of clips in those in my articles about Oregon State where the, the inside linebacker has to run all the way across the field to catch up to a running back in, you know, running a wheel route out of man coverage um, because he starts to bite on, you know, the run threat because they have to when you don't have a big two gapper in the middle. And like I, I, if I sound like a broken record, it's because I've had to say exactly this about Cal and Stanford in my previous articles. Um, so like, yeah, I thought it was uh, interesting how you pointed out in the OSU article that, you know, simply dispensing with a defensive coordinator is, you know, given what you have for talent on the field is 
more or less just a cosmetic move. Yeah, uh, I really felt like that was the case. The, that you're referring to, uh, they fired Tim Tibisar in um, late last season, um, and they replaced him with Trent Bray. And, and then, like, there are certain. Um, I'm not going to name them, but there are certain people who who are on the Oregon State beat who seem to believe that, the, oh, this is a defensive philosophy change. It'll be more aggressive and, and bold and, and, you know, and like as we were talking about earlier with baseball, I'm a numbers person. Like I ran the, you know, I charted all of their blitz patterns. I charted their personnel usage. I pattern charted their third down effectiveness rates. I charted, you know, how they react to different offensive personnel. Like I, you know, these are all data that you can get when you're charting every single play and then you can feed them into the, uh, you know, into the statistical regression engine running overnight. And, you know, it'll kick out like, guess what? Timbasar and Bray called their defenses in exactly the same ways. Like there's no, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two of them. And, and yeah, as you said, cosmetic, like I'm not trying to tear down, you know, Bray and I'm not trying to build up Timbasar or say that that firing was inappropriate or anything, you know, make your personal decisions as you wish to. But the idea that like, Oh, we're going to fix this schematically. Like, no, you're not, you have to fix the personnel and they may be fixing um, the defensive line. Uh, and that may free them up to do, you know, more stuff. And maybe the linebackers get to, you know, play a little, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, they don't have to automatically trigger on the run, you know, which will free them up to do other things. Like I could definitely see a lot of those things, you know, improving, but I just, they the back end is so, uh, the back end is just so talent free. They have one guy who I think is actually a pretty good cornerback, or he would be a really good cornerback named Rajon Wright. Um, he's the brother of a, a, a Nation Wright who's now in the NFL. And like you can see the real athletic talent. The problem is like if he gets beat even a little bit, he's gonna grab you and commit a, a pass interference uh, foul, and like that's just killing the team. And, and like it's the kind of thing where he could fix over the summer. Like he, he could just choose to not do that. Um, whereas like other guys can't choose to get faster or taller, you know. <laughs> Um, but like, you know, you know, ask Stanford Paulson Adebo or, or Caillou Blue Kelly, you know, what, you know, one cornerback does not turn you into a good defense. Like you you need at least two and you need more than that. And you need a pass rush and, and, you know, other things. So like, um, right. You know, uh, we're, we're kind of ahead of the, the, um, 2022 season of course but are you see are you seeing at this point um oregon just kind of oregon state basically treading water um over last year or do they are they looking at components that that might translate to better seasonal performance and what are you seeing right now i'm seeing if I were handing out betting advice, uh, I would say, um, well, I'd say stay away from the casino entirely, but like you should definitely not bet on Oregon state because it seems like a very high variance team to me. I could see them winning anywhere between four and eight games, which is just unacceptably high. If you want to start putting down money on win totals. Um, and the reason for that is I think they can assemble a starting 20, you know, based on the article, based on my research that I've done for the article that I wrote and I laid it out what in my article I thought these guys would be. I think they can assemble a starting 22, you know, 11 on both sides of the ball, um, which would have a, which would be a pretty good offense, you know, probably finish in the top 20 again. Um, and a defense that might just, you know, take a substantial step forward if this defensive line, um, if the defensive line issues are, are addressed. Um, 
you know, you know, now, yeah, if they can stay healthy right now, I don't think it would be the greatest defense in the world, but like they could get up to like the sixties, you know, maybe, you know, enough so that the offense could actually, you know, enough so that they're not just immediately submerged in a 14 0 hole by the end of the first quarter. Um, and the offense has to claw out of it because the, uh, it's just not how the offense is built. You know, the offense is not built for, you know, quick scores and deep downfield passing. Cause you know, like I said, I, I think that chance Nolan has some limitations as a quarterback. Um, but like, as long if the defense is good enough to like, is just good enough to keep them in it, then th- that offense can really like hold on to the, the ball and, 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 and build up a lead. Um, and like, yeah, I really believe that there is an eight, maybe even nine win version of Oregon state, but it is absolutely utterly dependent on staying healthy because given, given how poorly they recruit, they are just paper thin at so many totally essential units, um, where and it's, and we, it's so hard for any team to stay healthy with all right. your starters for the entire season. I mean, it's um, basically impossible. If that happens, it, it would be a miracle. Um, now there are a couple of positions where they could, you know, I think they could take an injury at running back. I think they could take an injury at inside linebacker. Um, it probably doesn't matter if their defensive backs get injured because the, you know, all of them are just at the same low talent level, but like they cannot afford a tight end injury. They cannot afford a quarterback injury. They cannot afford an offensive line injury. They cannot afford a defensive line injury. Um, Any of the uh, four positions that I just mentioned, if they take, I'm not kidding about this, a single injury to a starter, it's like that may be worth two or three more losses. Um, Like that's how precarious it is. for those guys. And so therefore, you know, it's why I would tell anybody stay away from this team in terms of betting on win totals. It's just not, you know, there's no way you can predict where and when those injuries are going to happen. And, you know, and so it's like, it's way too up in the air, but you know, I want to reiterate, like, I think that Jonathan Smith is a good enough manager and squeezes enough out of his dudes and makes the right decisions about who he should play. That's another thing that's like frequently lacking in the pac 12 that like the guys that he, he's going to select for his starting 22 that's a winning football team that's a team that's going to win more games than they lose um but god help them you know god help them if they if they take an injury at at (laughs) any of the positions they can't afford at and like four of the you know how depending on how you want to classify it 10 maybe uh you know positions four out of the 10 being completely unresilient to injuries like that's not tenable yeah and it, while we're while, while you know while, while we're talking about other teams in order to really be talking about Oregon like hey thank goodness you know for good roster management that's happened in the last several years I, I you know we've now mentioned Mario Cristobal's name a couple of times and I know there are a lot of duck fans who are really up in their emotions about the guy but like one of the things that I you know feel I've been very consistently saying about uh about Mario Cristobal is like as a roster manager as a guy who like gets you you know, set up so that you can handle injuries. Like that guy was pretty excellent, pretty excellent at those things. And like, if you need any evidence for that, you know, recent evidence is look at Oregon won 10 games with basically no inside linebackers besides Noah Sewell, right. You know, where they were playing safeties and true freshmen at the other inside linebacker spot because their injury run was so deep and so bad. You think any other program in the PAC 12 could handle that inside linebacker situation and win 10 games? 
No, the, I don't. Um, the, the, Utah couldn't. The, like the the depth based on good recruiting and you know knowing where you need your pieces. And it's that it's not just the good recruiting; it's, it's the management. You know, it's like who yeah, you allow yeah, to it's, go. It's, it, you have to be able to have the pieces to manage them. And Cristobal was good on both sides of that equation. Yeah. You know, you see so many times when, when new coaches come in, you know, the, the, it's like, Oh, this is a year zero. And the previous coach let the cupboard bear, or like there was a lot of damage done. There were a lot of departures like, Oh, this unit is just killing us. And it's going to take a year or two to, you know, get it back up to snuff. None of that is true for the program that Dan Lanning took over. He gets to hit the ground running. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to get everybody to love Mario Cristobal again. Like, that's not my, my project here. My, you know, my project is to look at all the rosters throughout the PAC 12 and the consistent lesson that I learn from looking at other rosters is that when I then turn around and look at Oregon's roster, I'm like, God, the ducks are in so much better shape. And th- you know, let's thank our stars for that. Yeah. And if, um, if the duck fan wasn't, watching uh this last season and understanding the the depth and the management as you say that uh Cristobal had in place and appreciate that then uh don't know what to tell you yeah no i mean like i don't want to let the guy off the hook for you know you know I, i've written plenty of critical articles i mean literally the first article that i wrote about Cristobal was that i thought he was making mistakes in managing the offensive line injury rotation in 2018 like i'm not kidding it's the first article that i wrote was you know a critical article about a very like in the weeds you know technical subject you know that i i i will not you know i i'll i'll hear anybody who wants to criticize me but i you know i i feel like my record speaks for itself in terms of like i am not you know, I don't pick a coach and just like write fawning articles about them. I mean, uh, the first article that I wrote about Willie Taggart uh, was, you know, you know, criticizing his game management um, in Arizona State uh, and, and then his media management with some of the, you know, the Oregon local reporters. And, and well, I was pretty critical of Willie Taggart. Like, I don't fall in love with coaches, guys. Like, I, you know, I, I write pretty critical articles. And like, I, you know, I've got a lot of negative things to say about certain, you know, game management stuff that Mario Cristobal did in certain management in particular of like how he could never figure out that his quarterback coaching was subpar and make necessary changes there. It looks like he sort of figured that out at Miami. I think that's sort of an admission that I was right about that. He, he probably owes me a card. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, man, if you don't think that guy was the best roster manager in the PAC 12, like, boy, if I got a bunch of articles, you should read. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah. I think that Dan learning owes him a card. Yeah. And landing, um, uh, for sure, for sure. And, um, landings and unknown. So yeah, you know, re- remains to be seen. You know, it's all, it's I, every all move that he's and rainbows made and, and until you get in a, a bad game situation. And sure. yeah. I mean, we haven't seen him coach a game, so, you know, we can't evaluate right. that. Yet. Um, but like, I guess I'll put it this way, you know, since I just established my bona fides for like, I'm willing to criticize Oregon coaches. He hasn't made a move that I'm willing to criticize with one exception. And even that I sort of understand. And, and that exception is hiring Adrian Clems, the offensive line coach, because I really didn't like the way that he developed his players at UCLA, even though kind of crazily all, all those guys wound up going to the NFL. It was like, I, I, st- I still have a hard time with that one. I, you know, my best theory is that like, he's got a really good eye for w- how 
for a kid who's in high school, how he's going to develop over the next six years and become an NFL offensive lineman. Like he can look at your frame and say, that's a future NFL frame. I want you to play for me. But then the thing that happens in the middle, the like, I'm going to get you to be a good college offensive lineman while I've got you like seems to be missing. He's like a donut with a hole in the middle. Um, but like, that's it. Um, and even then I sort of understand it. Like you can't go anywhere unless you get the talent, you know, like, um, uh, um, so, you know, like I, I've liked every decision that landing is, has made, you know, with one asterisk, like I, you know, I, I, yeah, we'll I, see how that pans out, you know, yeah. it's, um, he also hasn't coached a game for Oregon and, uh, I don't know if that matters or not, but, um, you know, we'll see what direction this goes. All right. I think that's going to do it for us this week. Um, uh, Bowers, great talking to you. Uh, how do you want to close? Um, just go ducks, go ducks. All right. (laughs) That's Uh, that's my standard close. Go ducks. uh, Thanks for being with me. Uh, thanks for our listeners. Uh, we'll catch you next time.